this is not to say that scientists is worse than anything else. It's that, but science is a human enterprise just like anything else. And so to say that it should have unchecked power or that we should just defer to the scientists because of their great record, that's poppycock. And anyone, again, whether it be eugenics or the lobotomy, or I mean, you could come up with all sorts of things historically just in the last hundred years where major scientific consensus were wrong and that you want criticism. You want vibrant debate, and you certainly don't want someone who claims to speak for science to basically be able to dictate without any checks and balances. This is Men with Chest, the podcast that pursues objective truth, goodness, and beauty, where we go back to the great books that made the West and give warning to the fate that awaits mankind should we not cultivate virtue. All right, today I am joined by Dr. John West, who is the Vice President of the Discovery Institute. And I am honored to have you on, John. And I thought to start, you just give us a bit of your background, uh, your you know experience with the Discovery Institute, but also mm-hmm. your academic experience prior. And then from the stuff I've read from you, I know you are quite the scholar of C.S. Lewis as well. So kind of just give us that background. Well, Joseph, thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, always, uh, never turn down a chance to talk about C.S. Lewis, or especially the abolition of man, or that hideous strength, or some of his stuff critiquing scientism. So, my background, let's see, my PhD is in government, and sp- focused on political theory, on actually American politics and constitutional law, but I, I, I'm kind of iconoclastic, I get involved in a lot of different things, so I've had a lifelong Love for C.S. Lewis, so actually co-edited an encyclopedia about him for Zondervan, the C.S. Lewis Reader's Encyclopedia, uh, co-edited a book called The Magician's Twin, which deals with his works on scientism, actually wrote a small monograph for the Acton Institute years ago about uh, C.S. Lewis as a political thinker, and so I've done a variety of things on on Lewis. Um, my own Interest. I was a college professor for 12 years, uh, tenured professor at a liberal arts university, and then I've also I've been at Discovery Institute for actually longer than that. Part, part of my time at Discovery, which is a think tank based in Seattle, was actually while I was also at Seattle Pacific University. Uh, so at Discovery Institute, I helped found a program, a project called the Center for Science and Culture, which is probably most notorious because it supports scientists and others who think there's Discernible evidence of design and purpose in nature, people like Michael Behe, Stephen Meyer, um, uh, many others. And I founded the program with actually philosopher of science, Steve Meyer. So I was back in the late night, mid to late 1990s. And then, uh, like I said, on Lewis, I've done a lot of his things that I think are really prophetic that really have interested me about his critique of the abuse of science. And the proper use of science, but the abuse of science or scientism or technocracy or in one of his letters, and I think he actually got this term from the person he was writing to, who I think was an American in Chicago, he used the term, which I actually prefer, scientocracy. And I I think that that's an interesting term, especially in this day and age. So that's just a little bit about me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, uh, that, you know, scientocracy or technocracy, scientism, Mm -hmm. all of that, uh, it leads me to his essay, Is Progress Possible? And he, he points out mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, previously um, you have the authoritarian-minded who will cash in on whatever it is that holds sway over the public at the moment. 
Uh, and he says in the past, it's been magic. It's been Christianity. And now it will certainly be science. So when you use that phrase, scientism, uh, is that a helpful way to understand is scientism essentially this creating a religion of science. And so you do things in the name of science. Yeah, I think that's a good definition. I think it's helpful to understand the, the broader context of when Lewis wrote that essay. It was for a newspaper, The Observer in England in 1958. And really Lewis, from before the time he was a Christian to through his conversion to Christianity and into the end of his life, he was living in a world where people were making all sorts of claims in the name of science. And the, the, really the number one claim is was trying to fuse materialism, which was an ancient idea, with modern science. So you, know, you go back thousands of years, you find people arguing, you know, is nature the product of purpose and mind, or is it just uh, atoms in motion with, with no direction? And, and you'd find ancient Greeks arguing this. But it was always, for most of human history, if you compared a rock to a human being, there was a vast difference. And so although there were philosophical materialists, there really weren't a lot of practical materialists uh, for most of human history, because people could just see that there's just such a vast difference between inanimate nature and things like human beings or, or, or other living things. Well, then you end up having sort of a mechanistic view of the universe that uh, grew up. Uh, certainly, it was before the 19th century, but certainly full flowering by the 19th century, uh, both in physics, but also in biology. You know, people like Darwin, who thought that you could explain the development of humans and all of life and even morality and religion through a blind process of natural selection acting on random mutations um, or random variations. The random mutations came after Darwin. But um, the so that's the context of where science was really hijacked to say that that older philosophical worldview of materialism, that we were just blind matter in motion, that now science has proven it. And because it is, science has the only access to the real truth about us and the world. And it's, it's the silver bullet that can basically control everything else. And so Lewis was living that. And so, uh, you know, this was the age of eugenics, where you had leading scientists, like even in America, at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Columbia, who said that we could harness the process of evolution on our own behalf to breed a a race of supermen, but also to get rid of the people they were considering unfit. You had the, the rise of really, in America, we call it the progressive movement, where you had people basically claiming that only scholars with scientific knowledge, with a capital S, really were uh, able to rule because they're the only ones who really knew things. Everything else were fairy tales. Religion was a fairy tale. Old-time morality was a fairy tale. It was this science, which wasn't just defined as understanding the natural world, which is great. Science defined as materialism. And so you had a lot of people, and Lewis, uh, who was one of the few people of his era, say, in England among academics, who saw the threat of this scientism allied with both the left and the right. So in, in Lewis's class, you had people who were anti-communist but pro fascist, or you had people who were pro-fascist, Nazi, but anti-communist. Lewis was really kind of exceptional because he was both anti-communist and anti-fascist and, and saw that that sort of totalitarianism often fused with 
the authority of science, which certainly was what happened in Germany. It, it happened in, in Soviet Russia under Stalin, that he saw that this was the new lever for authoritarianism, for totalitarianism. And so that's sort of the broader context. So by the time of the late 50s, when he's writing about this, there's already a history where he's been concerned about this for decades and saw during, you know, through World War II and then post-World War II, where Stalin was still living, you know, the sorts of claims that were being made. Like in Russia, if you believed in God, well, that was supposed to show that you had a psychological malady. And so you could be put in a psychiatric hospital to disabuse you of your, you know, belief in God. And and these were the sorts of things that he was concerned about. Yeah. And that was, that was really, uh, you know, for your own good, you know, it was in the name of the greater good. Yeah. Which, you know, directly ties with abolition of man of like, okay, if we can step outside the Tao, the natural law, then it removes this idea of punishment as a just dessert. And instead it's just, you know, corrective. We're just going to correct you, you know, and, and then, of course, any sort of you know, horrific thing is possible in the name of, oh, it's, it's, it's you know, for your good. Uh, and sometimes yeah. people, you know, they, they think, oh, well, this, Lewis was just sort of making up uh, being uh, worried about things they shouldn't have been. He wrote on the precise point you're talking about, an essay called The Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, where he explicates that precise thing. You know, people often sell us a bill of goods that, uh, well, it's, cruel and heartless to treat people as responsible creatures who are, you know, guilty for their actions and so that you don't want to punish them based on guilt or that they did something wrong. Um, and, and obviously there can be too harsh of punishments, and so I don't want to say that. But Lewis was pointing out something else, that the, 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 what people were advocating replacing the old view that, you know, let the punishment fit the crime and that, that the criminals were actually morally culpable was this medicalized that it wasn't your fault. And that may sound more compassionate, but if you really play out what that means, I mean, think about what we allow doctors to do to us uh, to help us. I mean, if we have cancer, we want them to carve us up and take out the cancer or put deadly, otherwise deadly chemicals in us, chemotherapy, all for our own good. And it is actually for our own good. Apply that, though, to criminal justice. You think the old retribution model was bad. You suddenly actually, you know, you may end up staying in jail or in a hospital for the criminals for your own good until you're cured. And if you're never cured, you may have a life sentence. And in fact, what people don't know, I wrote a book called uh, Darwin Day in America that was sort of a history of social Darwinism in the United States, and it has three chapters on criminal justice. What Lewis was predicting was reality. So if you look back just in the United States, things like the lobotomy. So, you know, the modified ice pick was supposed to be a miracle cure for for all sorts of things, including criminals. Uh, You were having people who were, you know, you might be collected because you were joyriding or something else and you, you you know, stole something from someone. But if you were then classified as that, that you were a pathological you know, someone who steals something, then even if you just stole something minor, you could get put for the rest of your life until the doctors could cure you. That's not very humane. And in fact, in the United States, where we saw this, our own court system was about to adopt this sort of medical model, just wholesale. And it was in the 1960s, and it was dealing with alcoholism, which is, is, a, is a challenge. Um, 
but they wanted to say, well, uh, if you were drunk and drove or or public drunkenness or something, you, you can't just um, put pr person in jail even to dry out because that's just like having the common cold. You're being cruel. And there was a court ruling by our Supreme Court that actually initially sided with that view. But then within just a few years, the court reversed itself because what happened is you had states like Texas and others saying, okay, we'll adopt the new medical model. And so we've determined that someone is chronically, say, alcoholic or something, and so it is a disease. So we'll, we'll commit them legally to a hospital that they can't leave until they're cured. And of course, the curing rate is very low. So there's no end point. Well, would you rather be 30 days in the drunk tank drawing out or a lifetime until the doctors certify to the government that you've been cured? And actually, it was the great uh, uh, African-American jurist Thurgood Marshall in this other uh, ruling, Powell versus Texas, who basically saw where this was going and then tried to close Pandora's box. And so Lewis was very prophetic in that. But that, that is right. That's one of the key things he's talking about. Once you treat human beings as something only to be manipulated as a specimen, not as free, accountable beings who are responsible for their actions, that's not more humane. Yeah. Yeah. You know? That's one of the contrasts he draws when he's talking about um, natural versus, you know, the things that make us human. And the natural does not have free will, whereas the, the human part does. And he, and he points that out in chapter three of Abolition of Man, you know, that um, if we remove mankind's, you know, connection to the natural law, we are removing this idea of autonomy is that, you know, the word he uses and that, that criminal justice issue makes that so poignant. He uh, phrases, it might be in that humanitarian uh, theory of punishment, or it might be another essay. He brings up this idea in multiple places, but he says that the, you know, he'd rather have the robber baron because his greed, you know, may be satiated at some point, but those who are, you know, going to do things to us in, in the name of the good, you know, oh, that's, that's the really scary tyranny. Yeah, actually, that is one of his really, you've hit on it, uh, Joseph, one of his really insightful things of saying that it's, it's not just the people who we consider, you know, people have a Hollywood view of evil of, of, like you have to be like Hitler or something. You have to be to be evil. No, some of the most frightening people uh, and the most dangerous are who are doing things that they think is for our own good. Yeah. Because they tell themselves what they're doing is right, and so in order to do that, they'll do anything. Yeah. You know? And and so that is it's it's not always just the the card you know the the caricature the cartoon version of an evil person. It's someone who passionately thinks what they're doing is good to remake the world or to remake you. Yeah. And there are no limits yeah. because what, how can there be limits to doing good? Yeah. It's a free pass to obey your vices, to worship your vices, you know, yeah. which I think that might be in uh that reply to professor Haldane, that essay. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I mentioned to, you know, my listeners that essays are a great way to dive into Lewis. And you can already see why, you know, as we're talking, we've already mentioned three or four and uh, they're great because they're so short. And then you get so much of the, you know, the same points he's making in his longer works, but because they're short, you can digest these things that are often more complicated for us to understand if we haven't had that, you know, background, especially in philosophy that he just has mm -hmm. at his command and, you know, can spout things off and we're like, whoa, where'd that come from? You know, I, I don't even understand what that means. So uh, just a reminder, essays are a great place to start. 
Uh, so your book, The Magician's Twin, or you are the editor mm-hmm. of that book. Mm-hmm. Um, the name, first off, is brilliant. So I thought, you know, we could start with with that and first kind of describe, you know, what you're riffing off of here, where that comes yeah, from, yeah. and then uh, what is meant, like what Lewis means by magician and scientist. And yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so good. So yeah, I, I don't know how I sort of glommed onto it. Um, I, I do think it's actually a, a good title. <laughs> so I, in re- rereading The Abolition of Man, I noted this passage where he talks about that something that you know, you could just pass by and not really think about it, that he says that science and magic really were twins. And so the theme of this book is trying teasing out, well, well, what does that mean? And, you know, I had been interested in Lewis in a long time and had a chance to do this book because uh, I actually had a foundation that was interested in a book on this and I was, and I wanted to do it. And then we turned it into a book, which I have several chapters in it in addition to editing it. And then actually a series of three videos that you can watch for free on YouTube that hundreds of thousands of people have watched. So for people who don't want to read you know, long books, although those chapters in The Magician's Twin are not that long, but you can also watch the video version for free. Just you know, go to YouTube and type in The Magician's Twin. So, um, so what does this mean? And uh, I, I think, you know, well, there are lots of ways you can attack that, but um, if you look at the origins or, or discussions of magic in the Middle Ages and also in literature, things like Faust and things, you know, magic is the quest to control the world. It's the quest to, you know, uh, and, and so it's utopian, but it's also this quest that, you know, humans aspire to what would happen if you had the power to basically be, be God. And, and, and that was the promise of magic. And, you know, in one sense, it petered out, things like alchemy petered out, but the impulse did not peter out. And Lewis, you know, Lewis was not anti-science, neither am I. And, you know, Lewis would say that he thought many things were good about science, especially science trying to understand the world and the way things work. But there is this type of science, of applied science, you might call technology, but it's not just technology. It's, it, it is the quest of trying to control things, control the world, exert power. And he thought that was very similar to magic. And I think what I just said is pretty substantiated in his writings. I do think, though, that the more you think about what magic was, I think there are a lot of other things that Lewis did sort of tease out, but may not have completely teased out. So, for example, magic is also, it's a supernatural thing. It, it plays off of people who are credulous. Um, it, uh, so it makes these dramatic claims. And actually, uh, Lewis shows in his, not just The Abolition Man, but his novel, That He is Strength, that claims made in the name of science uh, you know, people who are usually rational or skeptical, especially if you make some sort of claim about the Bible or Jesus or God or morality, and Lewis did write about this, as soon as you say, well, science says so, it's like, oh, completely credulous, accept anything in the name of science. And so there is this point that science is kind of leads to this type of rhetoric that plays off of this superstitious attitude that people treat it like, it's the voice of God, and, and their rationality goes out the door. So I do think that that's another aspect of how, so it's not that science seeks power over the world, or at least some people use science to try to 
exert their authority over the world and remake the world in the way that they want it. But it's also, it leaves this type of, well, if a scientist say it, it must be right. I mean, you think of in today's uh, context, one of the most famous scientists in the world in the last 23 years is a guy named Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book uh, called The God Delusion, among other books. Richard Dawkins, really, he makes all sorts, of, he basically claims that if you have a Darwinian understanding of nature, you know that in fact, actually says that Darwin helps you become an intellectually fulfilled atheist. He sort of shows you, this is just claptrap. He really, I mean, has, um, and you even have the, you know, the world famous, he's now dead, but the uh, Stephen Hawking, who said some things at the end of his life that just didn't make sense. I know my, uh, one of my friends is Oxford mathematician John Lennox, and he likes to say that, you know, basically, um, nonsense remains nonsense, even if a world famous scientist says it. And so I think, you know, Lewis is also playing into not just science as power, but also this scientific rhetoric as superstition. And then just more broadly speaking, science does function like a religion to people. And Lewis does write about this. And Lewis writes about the attraction of the, sort of the science as religion in his own life when he was a materialist. And he was found very attractive some of the uh, works to say like someone like H.G. Wells that promoted this view of the universe of this blind and caring universe that's just sort of evolved out of itself thinking creatures but then at the end of the age it's just going to be destroyed into nothingness and so it's this great tragedy and so it's this great seems to add meaning but it doesn't really add meaning but it's, it's just he felt the attraction to that so the scientist myth and, and sort of a uh, and so I think in those areas that science functioning as a religion or sort of a, a, a large meta-myth, um, science playing off of superstition uh, and science as this quest for power, um, just absolute power, those are some ways that in which I think, you know, they, they are connected, science and magic. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at that historical context, one of the really interesting things that I learned as I studied abolition of man, which led me to study other things, um, was, you know, Lewis pointing out that those who had studied the period of, you know, the middle ages into, you know, the Renaissance, they knew better, he said, than to think that magic was some sort of hangover that was, you know, so prominent in the middle ages. And then science came in and essentially booted it out. And he says, you know, those yeah. who studied the period, which is himself, you know, him being um, a master of the Middle Ages and Renaissance period for all things uh, literature related. So he knew this area inside and out, and he understood that magic wasn't this hangover from the Middle Ages that, you know, these new scientists came in and kicked out. Rather, the, the uh, magicians and the scientists were growing up together as twins. And mm. uh, I, I thought that was just a, a fascinating thing to, to think about. And as I understand it, that the main type of magic uh, that he would be particularly um, thinking about, I think, would be the alchemist. Is that yeah. is that how you would understand it as well? I mean, that's certainly the main example he gives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And then and then the scientists uh, like uh, um, Francis Bacon, I think, would be uh, the key figure for this this move away from, say, understand nature to command nature. Uh, yep. And yeah, and then, you know, the time frame that this is taking place, you know, you're talking what late, um, maybe 16th century or, or probably even a little bit before too. Um, yeah. And yeah, and so then 
you have these these figures growing up uh, together where at least some of the scientists are interested in this idea of, okay, we seek to subdue reality to the wishes of men, which is the same thing that the magicians are seeking. But the thing is the, you know, the alchemist, their quest failed because they couldn't actually transform the minerals into gold, whereas the applied sciences proved much more uh, productive, I would say. You know? Yes. Yeah. And applied and, and, and yeah. destructive. Yeah. Productive yeah. and destructive. Yeah. Both. So. Yeah. It, the, uh, you know, if you remove an ethical framework um, from directing, okay, just because science, you know, says we can do this, does that mean we should do it? it you know, if you take that out, then of course, it's anyone's game. Whoever has the power can use it as they see fit. And remember that uh, Lewis, um, as a young man, ended up on the front lines in trench warfare in World War I, which was most noted because of the advances in science of killing people, including poison gas, uh, including major artillery and other things. So, you know, the, the first sort of really technological uh, world war uh, being in the early 1900s, which he lived and had nightmares about for the rest of his life. And so... You, you could see the things, and in fact, the things without, I don't want to give away some of the story points of, of his novel, That Hideous Strength, but let me just say, some of the experiments that are talked about there that you ultimately learn about were things that were being done in Soviet Russia, among other things. So, I mean, th these were, <laughs> it's not just science fiction at the time that he was writing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to, uh, you know, continue with that historical era, um, one thing that it seems like we're really, you know, just misunderstanding today was the absolute uh, essential nature of the Christian worldview in order for the early discoverers like like Copernicus yeah. and, and plenty later. But, you know, he's a great starting figure here. Um, they understood that you had to have logos in the universe in order to discover things. So uh, why don't you... Tell us a little bit about that, because that, that is so vital. Yeah, so um, there's so much that can be said on that. Let me just start with a, a quote that many people may have heard from Lewis, because it's used a lot, but it helps encapsulate it, and then we'll sort of dig deeper. You know, he wrote in Miracles, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. And I think that that is exactly right. We We so take for granted now that when we look at nature, you're going to find regularities and that and that uh, things work in a rational or even super rational way. But if you look at the history of humanity, there's nothing guaranteed about that view of nature. I mean, for example, if, if you look in sort of many pre-Christian uh, or pagan cultures, their view of nature, not, not wholly, a lot of them is, you know, nature is the product of these warring deities. And in fact, it's really, if you really want to, you know, some people say, oh, however you view the biblical view of, of, of creation, and there are lots of different debates, you know, that if you if you read other creation accounts, you just understand that it's just similar to that. Well, no, it's not. I mean, I'd encourage you to read creation accounts from Egypt, Babylonia, all these other places. In a lot of those cases, nature is not the product of a super rational being who loved or designed or 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 you know created a masterwork. It's 
the result literally of the gods fighting each other in some of the things, ripping the bellies of, you know, one of the gods and then something else spurts out and then blood spurts, and then that's how you get this. I mean, it really is this chaotic process that doesn't have any end in view that is sort of really akin to the modern materialist view. We're sort of going back to that pagan view. There's just no rhyme or reason. And so that view of nature does not lend itself to the type of science we have. And so um, once you have this Judeo-Christian tradition of, of monotheism, of, of a God who actually is responsible for, and that nature is a reflection of his character, then it becomes rational to think, well, since God is rational, or I'd say super rational um, and creative, that we should be able to find regularities. He should have created things in a way that we can rationally understand. And this is how many of the scientists talked and thought about things. And, and it wasn't just, I remember he, he's now, unfortunately, he died last year, but one of the great sociologist Rodney Stark, who in one of his books, one of the most interesting things that was actually on the rise of science, one of the most interesting things he did was go and look at what he called scientific stars, which were sort of the, some of the biggest lights of the scientific revolution, um, and look at, well, were they sort of atheist, agnostic skeptics? Were they just sort of conventional religious, you know, they just went through the motions, or were they devoutly religious? Well, most of them were devoutly religious. And if you look at, like, the membership of the Royal Society in England, which, you know, this was where the, the society that Isaac Newton belonged to, and still today is one of the preeminent scientific societies around the world, the huge proportion of those early scientists who were Puritans in England. I mean, there was a very close correspondence between many of the early scientists who thought that they were explicating the glory of God and, and that because they thought that nature was the product of a super rational God, they thought it was understandable and coherent and that they could understand it and it wasn't just this chaotic process that many of the pagans had thought. So uh, Lewis understood that and teases that out in in Miracles, his, his book Miracles. But it is, uh, I mean, that is a great truth. And Lewis did worry also in Miracles that now that many scientists have moved away from that, at least in their underlying philosophy, and, and they have this underlying materialistic philosophy that has really no reason to see there to be any rhyme or reason in nature. How long was this, was science, as we know it, going to be able to be sustained? And I think that that is a big question. And you can see some of the answers to that today. Um, I think some of it, I, I would you'd say, though, that uh, I'd say science today goes on in spite of, of many scientists' rejection of design and purpose in nature, because they if you're trying to understand, say, a molecular system and how it's working, you're treating it as if it were designed for a purpose in order to understand it. So even if philosophically you're saying, well, it's all the product of this blind, random, and chance process, when you're actually looking at the systems in nature, that's not how you approach it, because you know you can't understand some detailed system or ecosystem in nature if you actually treat it as if it was not designed for a purpose. So I think the saving grace is that once people determine that nature really does show this strong evidence of design, even if you say you reject it, really for science to proceed, you can't reject it. So you have a lot of, well, I'd say people who are not necessarily hypocrites, but they're inconsistent with their own philosophical understanding. 
Nonetheless, you see hemorrhaging. So today, I mean, kind of, if your view of science or nature is that it ultimately is just this product of blind and purposeless pro mechanical processes, then that does raise a question about um, what's the normative. I mean, I mean, what claim does it have on us? So if you believe in the Judeo-Christian view that actually nature in some way, even though we're fallen, it reflects this transcendent purpose. So then there's something um, binding about, say, well, to get down to a current discussion, our gender, our biology, that male and female actually reflect some greater transcendent purpose that was built into biology that we should respect. But if your view of nature is that it is just the result of these chaotic, blind, and purposeless processes, why do you respect male and female? Now, you may say you have to because there's no way to go against it. But if your science has evolved to such a degree that you can, you know, hack off people's biological parts and fill them with uh, chemicals and say that you've now created a, a, you know, another gender, well, what's to stop you from doing that? I mean, because there's no transcendent standard, there's nothing transcendent that male and female reflects. And so it's really interesting because you sort of see our society going down the steps to of degradation. So you have the old line scientists that are almost quaint now. I also mentioned you know, Richard Dawkins before. So he's an old line materialist, but he's an old line materialist who did respect the facts of biology, as in that there are men and women, because, well, that's what biology says. But what he didn't see is, the very view that he was promoting, that nature is just this product of this blind and purposeless process, undercuts any reason why you would respect male and female. So now the next stage is the generation that he taught is now saying, well, if there's nothing, we're just the blind products of this, and we now have the power to do something about it, who's to say otherwise? Really, this is how you get, and, and Lewis was a good prophet of this too, and it's in the, the abolition of man, it's that the um, it's really Nietzsche. Uh, often it's said that you know philosophy is a series of, of footnotes to Plato. I think that's true up until Nietzsche. I think modern philosophy, in many respects, is a series of footnotes to Nietzsche because what is Nietzsche? Nietzsche uh, basically um, was this German philosopher who ended up going insane later in life, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, and he accepted this blind materialist view of nature. In fact, at one point, uh, he, he said that it was true but deadly. And what did he mean by that? Well, he accepted it as true, but then he realized that it would lead to nihilism. If you really think that it's true, that we're just the product of blind matter in motion, what's there to live for? So what is his solution? The will to power. We create, well, actually, in his view, it's the Superman. You have the beneficent dictator who basically gives reality to everyone else by imposing his will on everyone else. But then we democratize Nietzsche through deconstruction and other things, is that basically everyone is their own Superman to create your own reality. And Lewis foresaw this, and he foresaw it before he was a Christian. One of my favorite works by Lewis, and I'll ask if you've ever read it, is Dimer. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Virtually no one that I know, even people who love Lewis, don't read it. So Dimer was this narrative poem that... Fortunately, within just a couple of years, we'll be in the public domain again, so everyone can use it, that he uh, wrote when he had turned from materialism 
to idealism. So he was not yet a Christian when he wrote it. And he has a chapter there where, uh, which I would say is sort of his response to Nietzsche, where he actually, basically a magician, great wizard, is basically offering him to live in his world of dreams. He, basically, he can create his own reality. And this seems so wonderful until he lives it and it become, it hollows him out and it's so unsatisfying. It's it's horrific. And and Lewis, so Lewis foresaw, I think, where you get, once once you go down from you reject the rationality of the universe and, and God as its creator, you know, you have the old line materialist who sort of cling to rationality still, even though their own views don't support it. But then the next stage is, well, you just, you overturn rationality and all that is left, and he talks about this in, in the abolition event, is your appetite, is whatever is your strongest appetite that you want to do, and that leads to hell. Yeah, the point you made there about, you know, the transgender issue, and at least a guy like Dawkins, you know, he'll um, say, well, this is nonsense, because he at least accepts biological reality. Uh, that uh, made me think of this idea I wanted to explore with you a little bit as I, you know, have studied abolition of man and thought through this concept. Uh, and it's this idea, he, he actually presents this, I think, maybe the most clearest for people to understand in screw tape letters, actually, in the seventh letter. And the the phrase is the materialist magician. And the, uh, you know, the letter is from screw tape writing to Wormwood, you know, so these are fellow demons and uh, he's teaching him how to be the good tempter. And, you know, he's saying that ultimately what we want is to create these materialist magicians. And uh, then to explain this out a little bit, I, I have this kind of idea in my head here. And this is kind of what I'm thinking. All right. So sometimes we defy science. And I think you might even use this um, phraseology in Magician's uh, Twin. Or I know it was in um, that Restoration of Man book. By, how do you say his last name, Michael? Eshelman. Eshelman. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so I know he uses that, um, and I think it was in Magician's Twin. But so the transgender issue, that's a very clear example where we just defy science. You know, just, oh, biology says this, defy it, right? <laughs> but then there's other times where I think we clearly deify it, like the transhuman um, quest, you know, to become yep. immortal. Uh, that is to deify science is our, our new savior. It can bring us salvation. Yeah. But then I think there's these times where we combine these two things where we, um, deify it, but also defy it. So we deify it on the face of it, but behind the surface, we're actually defying it. And, uh, it seems to me that like when I look at Lewis's writing and I go back to this this kind of utopian quest. And I, I think a good starting point in the modern era is to look at Hegel. Mm -hmm. And from Hegel, you know, you see the American progressives, kind of like a direct line from Hegel. Uh, but yep. then you also see like Marx and then all the adaptations that came from Marx, whether they were, uh, yep. you know, fascism mm -hmm. itself, like there's an example of an adaptation. Yep. Uh, but mm -hmm. um, then you have the critical theorists in America kind of the most mm -hmm. direct line that we have, which is kind of like a adaptation from Marx as well as yep, kind of going is. more back to Hegel too. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's that kind of mixture, but they, the goal is this idea that we can actually create the utopia that we can perfect mm -hmm. society. And Herbert Marcuse, you know, is very explicit about that in his book essay on liberation, where 
you know, he says utopia is no longer no place, you know, which is what the word actually means in Greek, you know, going back to Thomas More's satire. Mm-hmm. He says, no, it's not no place. It's this place that we can actually bring about. Here's how you do it. You know, and that's that's the vision that they present. And the thing is, that this is done then in the name of science. It's like, okay, we can actually do this, but, you know, science is our path forward. So it's to deify, make science the God, right? But it seems to me that that, you know, if we're looking at science, it's like, okay, science is the new religion here. We're actually using the name of science, the new God, in vain. Yep. Because you yep. can't actually produce this, you know, utopia that they Im- imagine, right? So uh, it, I, I see it as like, okay, behind the surface now, they're actually defying science because the claim that they're making is a magical one. It's, it's like the alchemist who said that you can make the yeah. mineral to gold. Well, now it's saying that we can transform the society into this, you know, perfect society. We can make men into women and women into men. Yeah. And I mean, another and, form of alchemy. Yeah. yeah. And so the, it seems to me that the, the object that's being acted upon here, instead of being the minerals, is now the souls of humans and mostly mm-hmm. children. Uh, historically, mm-hmm. with all these utopic movements, it's children. It makes mm-hmm. sense. You capture them when they're the most yep. neuroplastic. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. you use neuroscience, right, um, in mm-hmm. order to to try and do this. And so, as I, you know, as I look at that idea of the uh, materialist magician, I, I see like, okay, Lewis is pointing out that you know, in screw tape letters, that that is kind of the the goal is to get to this point where we have these materials magicians and i'm looking at it and thinking okay this this utopic quest isn't that 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 is the materialist magicians come to fruition because they mm-hmm. claim science and deify it and in the name of science mm-hmm. we're going to do this but in reality that's that's just a pipe dream it's it's this magical idea that oh this as if by magic this is actually going to happen uh, so, uh, yeah, I just, it's something I was thinking about. I was curious your thoughts on my long uh, formulation there. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I would, I guess the one thing I would say, and you're, you're right also to highlight that we, t- today we deify science, but we also defy it. But I guess what I would say is like with, with regard to going back to the transgender is on the one hand, you're defying science, but if science no longer is based on a view of nature as being normative or something that we're obliged to follow, you're not actually being defying the new kind of science with, with say, transgenderism, because the new type of science is simply power. You know, if, if we have a power to try to do something, we will, now it may end up not working out well and being a travesty, but there's nothing intrinsically that will keep you from treating human beings as specimens, as Lewis says, and and remaking them in whatever way your appetite wants. Because that is science and the new thing. Now, I think that's a betrayal of the history of what science should be. Um, but that is, you know, it's science in service. to, And, and, and it is science as the, the rhetoric that you use no matter what you want to do. Yeah. So um, I working on another project now and one of the the chapter titles will be the myth of the white lab coat and it's true that in our society that uh if you want to sell something you're going to uh use the use 
the the mythical scientist and you know in the white lab coat because you think you know someone white lab coat they're objective they're truthful they don't have an agenda they're experts and so all of that emotive baggage you want to harness that because that's a way to get people to do what you want and that's the way to to sell it and i mean sometimes in politics it's, it it actually is almost farcical so and you know there can be different views on the example I'm going to give, but it just I think it does show how in our in our culture the context of science writ large is is so powerful. So when years ago uh, the Obama administration um, passed Obamacare, and again people can have different views of the healthcare system, uh, the original press conference to announce it was very interesting because they brought in people who were supposed to be doctors and, and scientists. Um, some of them may not have been, but and, you know, they were wearing normal clothes. And so they actually had stacks of white lab coats to hand out for them to put on so that in the photo that went out by the media, it would be all these people in white lab coats who are endorsing this because they understood, you know, the political consultants understood the optics of this. And so, you know, if you want to sell anything in society now, including tyranny, do it in the name of science. And you think about the last two or three years we lived through with the, the COVID. And again, there are different legitimate differences of opinion on many things on that. But I would hope that most sane people or sensible people now on the other side of that would at least understand that when you have science used, say, for example, to promote outright censorship of different views of, of actually experts from some of the same academic institutions who are, are pushing various things, you, know, that you don't have the right to disagree and you're using this in the name of, that science won't allow it, that you understand that um, science as a rhetorical bludgeon and, and as a justification for things, it, it's not just about science. And that's what Lewis was getting at at, in the, the essay that you talked about, uh, Willing Slaves of the Welfare State, because, you know, as just like religion, if you were in the Middle Ages, you want to say, thus saith the Lord, you know, our, our king is divine right of kings. God appointed him or her, the queen. Therefore, you have to follow them, even if what they say seems wrong. doesn't matter because God appointed them. Thus saith the Lord. How can you oppose that? Well, now it's thus says science. And even if the actual facts of science don't say that, they turn science into this faith ideology rather than, I mean, what's really science should be what the evidence says and what science, you know, actually shows. But science has turned into what a few self-appointed and you know, people claim it says. And so and if you have the power to say it, to say science says this, that's what you should follow. And, and Lewis was very prophetic in that. Yeah, that's a, a case of... Uh, that screw tape letter where he's talking about that yeah. materialist magician, and he's saying, you know, we want to emotionalize science or emotionalize, um, was it? Yeah, emotionalize science in order to create this materialist magician who will then worship a vague force. And it seems to me that 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 newly worshipped vague force that we've created in modern times is this idea of progress, and you know, we can truly continue to progress mankind into the future to this utopia. And uh, I, it's it's hard not to see how, okay, in the name of science, these things are are being done. And you realize like, okay, that's not, that's not actually science. Science cannot make these ethical judgments. Yeah, that's a really key point. And if, if 
people on this topic just read one essay by Lewis, please do read Willing Slaves of the Welfare State because he lays it all out. And one of the points that he makes that I think we've just lived through is that in this scheme where science becomes the rhetorical bludgeon is, and, and people claim the right to rule by their superior expertise, not because they were elected, not because they, they have, but because of their technical expertise. And that then he says, in this scheme, even the politicians basically become these scientist puppets. And one of the things, again, whatever you thought about, say, some of the, the lockdowns in various states and, and there were different things, one of the things that everyone ought to be concerned about is in most cases, some of the most draconian things that were imposed uh, in the name of COVID in the United States were not done actually by a vote of legislative assemblies, for example. They were often done sometimes by the governors, but often by public health authorities who are not elected, that the politicians simply rubber stamped. That's exactly what Lewis is talking about. So even if you thought the policies were right, you really shouldn't be deferring to people just because they claim to be experts. Because And Lewis, again, was very wise. He said, let scientists tell us about sciences. and, and, and that. But politics is about the good for man and, and what is worth having at what price. And on those sorts of judgments, uh, you know, scientists or, or you know, technical expertise is not going to decide it. And shouldn't, you know, it doesn't give any added value. It doesn't make the scientist who's claiming right. And again, to use an everyday example uh, that we've just experienced in the last few years. So one of the debates about the various lockdowns was, obviously, deaths from COVID were terrible, and you should want to try to minimize those. On the other hand, as we're finding now, and people had warned about this, but no one wanted to pay attention, deaths from untreated other medical conditions when you can't get into the hospitals uh, or, or when or uh, socialization of kids who aren't allowed to attend school uh, with uh, fellow kids or you know mental health issues or small businesses being shut down and people out of their jobs. All of those things are also important. And it's not a scientific question of how you balance those things. I mean, is it, you know, a hundred deaths from COVID versus a hundred suicide deaths from people who can't interact with others. That's not a scientific question. And balancing those interests, that's actually what politics is all about. It doesn't always do a good job, but it's actually what politicians are supposed to do is try to rank, you know, what is the most important? What can we achieve? What can't we achieve? And also recognize that no one policy, everything's going to have bad effects as well as good effects. And you have to try to figure out what the best thing is. And, and one scientist, whether it be Dr. Fauci or Francis Collins or whoever you want to name, doesn't have the expertise to balance all that out. That's something all of us, through our elected representatives, have a right to have be part of the conversation in. And so one of the most dangerous things about this thus Seth science and that we just defer to what the experts say. Well, first of all, the experts often disagree. So which experts? And, and then people gravitate, if, if expertise is tied to power, then the people who really want power gravitate to, well, I'm an expert, so therefore you have to follow me. It's, the dynamics are awful. So, you know, you really, uh, this is a cautionary tale. You, you really want checks and balances in your society, and you really don't, you do want good scientific and technical expertise, and you want your public officials and ordinary people to draw on that but you don't want to make the experts also the judge, jury, and executioner.
Yeah. You want them, and this, this was Lewis's point, let them advise, let them give their wisdom, but other people have to sort out you know, what the actual policy is going to need to be. I mean, yeah, going all the way back to, you know, like Aristotle and uh, his politics, uh, prudence is the virtue of the statesman, you know, and yep. and we mm-hmm. have largely um, handed over decision-making, like you're saying, to supposed experts uh, and not realizing how dangerous this is. Whatever side one would fall on on a particular issue, that's kind of a second fiddle to the more central point of, you know, once you hand over that, this is how we're going to you know, determine things. We're going to say it's based off of this scientific expertise. Well, then it could easily flip to one day you're in favor and like, oh, yeah, I want that. And then the next next day, OK, now it's totally against what I want. You know, that you've handed over um, decision making in a manner that it can easily come back to bite you. So and the most you're right. I mean, but the most powerful argument I think that people make is that, well, but, you know, politicians are yahoos. They don't know what they're talking about. Ordinary people don't know what they're talking about. And that's often true. But, but their assumption is that the scientists or, or the people who claim to speak for science necessarily are almost infallible. And anyone who knows anything about the history of science knows that that's not true. And, you know, let's, apart from where I think we can actually see this just in the last three years, let's go back just over the past century, uh, one of the biggest crusade, scientific crusades in Western Europe and in America in the first several decades of the 20th century was the eugenics movement. And it was the consensus view of science, not just in Germany, not just in England, not just but in the United States. Harvard, Princeton, Yale, members of the National Academy of Sciences, It was the consensus view of science that something now that would be looked down upon about scientists, oh, well, that was claptrap, that was fringe science. No, it wasn't. It wasn't fringe science. And in fact, if you look at at the biggest critics of it, yes, there were some scientists, but some of the biggest critics of eugenics were actually Catholics and then some evangelical Protestants. And they were actually attacked. If you go back, as I have in you know, the 1920s and 30s, and you look at the rhetoric as being, oh, you're just opposing this because you're anti-science, because of your religion. And, and eugenics did not fall primarily because that scienti- scientists were remarkably self-correcting. Eugenics largely died, and some would argue it's come back, but let, let's just say for a while it died, because... After we won World War II and you opened up the camps and and then also learned what Nazi Germany was doing before gassing the Jews, they were gassing handicapped in their eugenics programs. I mean, many people don't know that the the ruse of of, um, gassing Jews in concentration camps in fake uh, shower stalls uh, was first perfected and used before on the Jews in Germany on the handicapped in their eugenics program. And that's where they developed that technique. And then it moved and then they redeployed it. Um, and that was done by doctors. Doctors, it wasn't, and, and that is, and so people were so revolted by what they saw um, that then that sort of killed it. It wasn't sort of this science, you know, the science, there were some scientific critics of eugenics, but that was not the primary reason that it got its bad name and that we stopped doing it. Or the Tuskegee syphilis experiments in, in this nation, 
where basically they left untreated uh, syphilis for uh, a number of black men in the South as part of a scientific experiment. The reason we don't do that now is not because the scientists got together and said, well, no, this isn't good. It, It became a public scandal. And the public at large pushed back on that. And so... Uh, and this is not to say that science is worse than anything else. It's that, but science is a human enterprise just like anything else. And so to say that it should have unchecked power or that we should just defer to the scientists because of their great record, that's poppycock. And anyone, again, whether it be eugenics or the lobotomy, or I mean, you could come up with all sorts of things historically just in the last hundred years where major scientific consensus were wrong and that you want criticism. You want vibrant debate, and you certainly don't want someone who claims to speak for science to basically be able to dictate without any checks and balances. Hi, it's me. Dr. West and I are about to switch gears here as I ask him what he thinks Lewis means by regenerate science in Chapter 3 of Abolition of Man. I covered this last week in the episode titled Materialist Magicians. So you can go back and look at that if you are curious uh, what I think about that, and you'll see there that I... I'm leaving some of that on the table for future episodes as we get into other texts, uh, just because it didn't make sense at that time to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, It's a very deep hole, and there's a lot there. So a lot of that is left for future seasons. All right, back to the episode. As Lewis goes, um, you know, into the end of Abolition of Man, he talks about this regenerate science. And... I'm just curious what you think he he means by that and like what that would look like going forward. I'm not sure he fully knew himself, but I think um, from his writings, we can say it's it's not materialistic reductionism, meaning that in the modern materialist version of science is everything you look at can be reduced to these blind material components. His view that he talked about at the end of Abolition Man is a science that, when it explains, would not explain away, by which he meant that if you looked at human beings or plants or animals or anything, that you understand that they're not just reducible to their um, underlying, you know, say their underlying chemistry or something or, or their, their molecules, that you have to understand them as a completed creature and and take them in their own terms. Yes, you can understand the, the, the components that make them up, but you need to understand that we are more than just our molecules. And so that's what he wrote about that, that he was pointing to. But And he did have a friend, Owen Barfield and others. You mentioned anthroposophy earlier, which as a Christian, I actually think is quite problematic because it, I mean, it sort of uh, veers into the occult. I, I don't think it was... I think it's strange, but 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 some of those people did all did have an idea of that we weren't just blind matter in motion, and so the the, the Lewis is getting at that. Now, I think what I'd like to say is, well, what does that look like if we if we tease that out more? I actually think that in both modern physics and modern biology, um, there are examples of what Lewis is talking about. So, if if you look in biology now. Systems biology is one of the big growing things. And systems biology is largely looking at systems and and not just decomposing the parts and and treating things in biology that that we find 
as having value in and of themselves, even while you're trying to understand them. And so I would think that some of my colleagues who find evidence of design and purpose in nature, you know, things like that were fine-tuned for life or that you know, the way nature actually exists to support, I would say, human uniqueness and other things, um, also as a way of getting out of just the, the reductionism of, of science. And uh, reduction in and of itself is not bad in its place. The problem is if all you do is think that every time you look at someone is that really, uh, I, I actually started my book Darwin Day in America with just a compendium of what scientists were saying humans were. And things that was like, things like humans are nothing but an, uh, a big fly or humans are just uh, a more developed earthworm or people, I mean, really? Okay. I mean, I guess at some point you can, you know, we're a much more developed earthworm, but I mean, Think about that mentality when you look at a human and you see an earthworm, not even just a chimp, you see an earthworm or a fly. That's ridiculous. And so, you know, understanding the ways, for example, that humans are unique, uh, understanding the way that nature actually does work uh, hand in glove to underlay a, a more transcendent view of the universe as suffused by purpose. I think these are all ways that sort of help fulfill what Lewis was calling for. And, and, and to some degree, you know, modern physics, I'm not an expert in modern physics, but, you know, is not mechanical anymore. And I, I actually think science has gone beyond, you know, there, there's a lot of people who are clinging to the old worldview and trying to find the facts of science today to make sense in the old materialist worldview. But there's a lot in science that's actually pointing away from that. So again, I think Lewis is talking about a science that doesn't just dismiss the reality of human uniqueness, of, of beauty, of uh, things that, you know, an, an animal. I mean, th think of a, a leopard or a bear or a dog that, that views it as for who it is and not just because we can tell about the bones that make it up. So I think that's what he was getting at, but he doesn't fully sketch it out. The... Um, the key value that I've noticed, I think, just as I've looked at abolition of man, when talking about the science would be objective beauty. And like the example of a star, you know, you, he mm -hmm. has that uh, line in the Chronicles of Narnia uh, where, you know, the star is made up of these gases, but that's not what a star is. And I think he's getting at this star is something that has yeah. this value of objective beauty. And so we, um, you know, we want to not strip out these uh, transcendentals from the physical world and just reduce them to that purely materialistic thing. Uh, that's uh, as best as I can tell the, uh, you know, his idea of this regenerate science. And he's going back to Aristotle and Plato. I mean, of course, Aristotle had multiple causes and, you know, he has the efficient, the material, uh, which are the ones that really today scientists would focus on, but there was also the formal and final. And I do think there is something, a lot to be said about that. I mean, are you really understanding who human beings are if you're always trying to say that, well, uh, human beings are overgrown apes or they're overgrown this, or you know, if we just treat this, it seems to me you're missing something important about human beings when, when you take that approach. And and even, again, the mathematicians understand this and some of the physicists because 
one of the, even today, you actually have physicists or other scientists, especially outside of biology, talking about the elegance yeah. of the universe. Well, what is that? Yeah. And, and the striking symmetry that no one can understand unless you actually think things are the product design of between mathematics and nature and physics. I mean, mathematical mathematics underlay and underlies most of our things in nature. And I mean, these mathematical, these exquisite, beautiful structures. And it didn't have to be this way. And uh, and why is there this correspondence between what we know from math and in how the, the, the repeating patterns and structures even of a seashell or of a flower. Now, in a in the older view, if if nature represents a legislator or an artist, this all makes sense. Uh, and I think Lewis is trying to recapture that. And there are glimmers of it today. I think some of the places where it's the hardest to get the glimmer is in sort of some hardcore Darwinian uh, biology and some sort of hardcore chemistry. Although I know chemists who, like Marcos Eberlin, who's a member of the, uh, who wrote a book called uh, Foresight that understands the beauty that underlies chemistry. And so if you talk about him, you're not going to have a materialist view of, of the world. And so, and he's a world class member of the National Academy of Sciences in Brazil and world renowned in the field of mass spectrometry. And he's actually a friend of mine. But you get him talking about the beauties of nature and the structures of chemistry. Uh, you're going to have a way different view than if you talk to uh, some other people. So I think there are glimmers of, of what Lewis is talking about, which is very positive. All right. Well, one final question here that I've been asking my guest. Uh, what is your favorite Lewis book? Oh, that's hard. You know, I actually think probably my favorite book is That Hideous Strength. I think it's really undervalued, and um, there's so much of himself in it. And I guess one reason I like it is I was a tenured college professor for t 12 years, and so that academic, some of the academic infighting seems very real to me. <laughs> and then also his, uh, an essay we did discuss here uh, that he wrote called The Inner Ring um, is forms the basis of that. And anyone who's sort of experienced the tug of the inner ring uh, which I have in various parts of my life that, that and, and Lewis actually helped me understand it and sort of surmount it. it. So there's so much in there. And then frankly, there, there's even more than that. I mean, um, uh, I remember when I taught a seminar years ago and this sort of re probably reflected the person. It was a, there was a young woman who was just got engaged to be married and she was insistent that the, the main thing about the, 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 uh, her and her fiance were convinced that the abolish, not the abolish man, that that his strength, the main thing was about Lewis's work on the allegory of love. And, and I don't think that's the main thing. And of course, they were just were getting, you know, uh, connected and we're going to get married. And so I understand why that was uppermost in their mind. But there is actually a lot in there on that. And so the relations between the sexes and romantic love and men and women, and, how they, and that actually is another big thing that often isn't tapped. Uh, let alone his views on society, the abuse of technocracy. It's just a wonderful book. Yeah. I wish uh, everyone would read it. Um, the one book, though, that I wish that everyone would also read, but just because it would give them more insight, is Dimer. I, I love uh, That Hit of Strength. That's my favorite. But Dimer is sort of a secret favorite of mine just because 
Um, even most people don't know when they use the term Shadowlands. I think, well, Lewis said that just in the Chronicles of Narnia. Actually, it appears at the end of Dimer. So I would actually argue that a close reading of Dimer will give you a guide to much of what Lewis wrote in the next 30, 40 years of his life as a Christian, even though it was written right before he became a Christian. It's not a perfect work, but it's it's just intriguing to look at his mind at work in, in that little period from which he was no longer a materialist and on the cusp of going to, you know, he was an idealist and then on the cusp of going to Christianity and comparing Dimer to the Pilgrim's Regress, which yeah. is in some sense similar after he was a Christian. It's just fascinating. Yeah, Pilgrim's Regress, that's going to be one of the works I get to, I think, probably after that hideous strength. And Dimer is going to be something that I uh, go to, especially with the, you know, the early stages of his journey where he's dealing with that idealism as, um, you know, it appears with like Hegel. Uh, You're right about Hegel. Um, I mean, that is, and in the American context, so someone like Woodrow Wilson, who was a president, but he was a college professor and president of college before that. And, and uh, Woodrow Wilson so loved Hegel that even in some of his love letters to his wife, he was talking about Hegel. So, I mean, Hegel was, you know, this idea of, you know, the, the final world utopia, world civilization that we were evolving towards, civilization by civilization, really, uh, they fused sort of Dar- Darwinism and biology with the previous Hegelian evolution, which was different, but it was sort of fused yeah. uh, in many ways and yeah. very influential. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You being a guy with government, I'm sure you know John Burgess. And, uh, oh, yes. Yeah, his yeah. impact on Frank Goodnow. And, yep. I mean, yeah, I, I was shocked when I read, um, and I don't remember what the book was. It was like 1890, one of his big, early, most important ones that John Burgess wrote and talking about the apotheosis of man. Oh, so, so that, yes, the yeah, apotheosis straight, of man. Straight out yeah. of Hegel. Um, and, you know, and he, he mentions Hegel by name, and I'm um, just like, wow, it, it is right there. It's so obvious, uh, and we could learn a lot by recognizing, you know, that's that's where it came from, and this is where it believes we're heading and yeah it was just like a basically you had the american basically you had the american founding but then by the end of the 19th century you had all of the founders of modern political science in america were either going to germany outright or just reading german thinkers and that transformed their view and they basically trashed the american founding the constitution declaration of independence and replaced it with german hegelianism and this is one reason why they didn't really see i mean woodrow wilson uh although once world war one started he got upset but pre-world war one he was actually anti-england and um was actually kowtowing to to germany because again germany is the repository of all wisdom because it's hegel and it's Marx, it's all these other people. And so they, and I think even in, in the 1930s, you had people who they viewed Germany as the, the apex of world culture. They didn't want to see what was happening. Uh, and they had imbibed basically this whole school of academics in America had basically embraced that. And we saw what happened. Yeah. I'm curious because we got on this now and I don't know this and I, I've heard it uh, just rumored. John C. Calhoun, did he have a connection with Hegel? You know, um, I mean, I've read Calhoun. Um, it's been 
years. I, I think he was a terrible guy and his idea of the concurrent majority and some of the other things. Uh, and, and in fact, maybe almost Rousseauian, I mean, I mean, his his disrespect for underlying rights and, and things that it was sort of but I don't know with regard to Hegel. I, would, okay. I guess I wouldn't be shocked, but um, I don't know what Calhoun read. I, I've read yeah. Calhoun, but I don't. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was. I was just curious if you knew. They would have been. It would have been very early in terms of Hegel coming to the states. Um, but no. yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you, Doctor West, for talking oh, well, thank to me you for Joseph. so long. And yeah. So- and where uh, can people find you if they're looking to get, say, your books or the films or anything else? Yeah, um, well, they can go to Discovery Institute, uh, discovery.org. Um, if they're interested in Lewis, or actually The Magician's Twin, there is a website about the book and the films. I just think magicianstwin.com or magicianstwin.org, one of the two, go, and that will give you about that book and also easy links to the documentaries based off of that book. Okay. So awesome. Thank you for joining. Okay, me. great. Yeah. Thank you, Justin.